0: Uh, this is Mike Watt from San Pedro, California, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks.
1: Hey, this is that one guy. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. All right!
2: Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, Aaron. On today's episode, we're going to be featuring a couple of different bass players, uh, both awesome bass players. Mike Watt, formerly of The Minutemen, uh, Firehose, and The Missing Men, and Mike Silverman, who is also known as That One Guy, a one-man band act, and we'll have a little more information on both of them coming up as we had a couple of great interviews there. A couple of shows that are coming through for Pittsburgh. We have Kansas coming up on March 4th. That One Guy coming up on March 18th, Mike Watt on April 10th, UFO on May 9th. There are also many, many more shows that'll be coming um, in and around the Pittsburgh area. And if you go to our website, www.ironcityrocks.com, and click on the link for concert calendar, you can see all the different concert calendars that we have out there, um, some broken down by uh, promoters, some broken down by venue. So I invite you to stop out there to always keep up with everything that's going on in Pittsburgh, because we are dedicated to everything in the Pittsburgh music scene. All right, so today's episode is kind of the bass player episode, which really goes well for me, since I am a bass player, and I was very, very fortunate to talk to both of the gentlemen I got to speak with. Our first interview is going to be with Mike Watt. Mike Watt played with a band called The Minutemen, and after The Minutemen, a band called Firehose. Um, if you're not familiar with either of those, you might want to reach back and see if you're familiar with a band called Black Flag, because that's how I discovered uh, the Minutemen and Firehose, of course. Um, Black Flag was Henry Rollins' punk band back in the, uh, the 70s, 80s. Uh, Henry joined more in the 80s, and they kind of took the world by storm with what Black Flag did. And Black Flag had a record label they ran called SST Records. Well... The Minutemen were on that label, they were part of that family, they're on SST Records. And so I kind of learned about Mike and the Minutemen at Firehose, kind of backwards from everybody else. So Mike's bass playing style, this is a guy who holds down the low end, but also really pushes the boundaries of the instrument. He pushes the voice, he pushes the melody of the song, and he's not going to confine himself to just, okay, well, you know, this is the chord here, I'll play the root note. He plays some very... Out their tonalities and out there in a good way, um, he really pushes pushes the boundaries. I'd heard somebody quote them as punk jazz, and I really think that is a great way to think of it because Mike is kind of like he's kind of like Miles Davis. You know, if you've ever listened to Miles Davis record, especially. Um, Oh, what was my favorite album? Kind of Blue. Uh, if you've heard that record and you listen to what Mike does on bass, you can kind of hear the similarities between Miles Davis's trumpet lines and a little bit of similarities with what Mike does on the bass. Uh, even though, really, Mike, I don't think, was very familiar with that at the same time. And Mike has also played on a ton of different records lately. Um... We'll talk in the interview, I kind of compared him to the punk rock James Jamerson. If you're not familiar with James Jamerson, he was an amazing uh, Motown bass player, played on pretty much every Motown hit you've ever heard, whether you know it or not. And that's kind of Mike. Mike's been all over the place. Um, a place that maybe you might not expect somebody who's you know known as a punk rock guy would be Kelly Clarkson. He actually performed with Kelly Clarkson and played a few tracks on her record. So I had a great time talking to Mike. I found it to be a very, very inspirational conversation I ran right home, picked up my bass, started trying to push my imagination, push the way that I approach it, Um, and I hope that you enjoy it as well. Uh, Before we get started with the interview, we are going to listen to uh, three songs off Mike's latest effort, Hyphenated Man. They will be Arrow-Pierced Eggman, Beak-Holding Letterman, and Hammering Castle Birdman. So why am I playing three songs? Well, Mike is revisiting his Minuteman Man roots. And these songs are very short. They're all under two minutes. So we're going to string them all together. They really kind of flow as one piece of music. And um, I just, I really love this record. It was, it was a very interesting approach for me to hear still kind of punk rock rooted record, but with a very, very jazz approach to a free form style here. So without further ado, we'll get into those songs and then our interview with Mike.
3: First,
0: the father of the man, cock in the shell, a the busted up plan.
3: Thirty pieces, broken up beer.
4: Gentlemen, I have on the phone with me this evening, Mike Watt of the band, The Minute Men, Firehose, and most recently, Mike Watt and the Missing Men. Mike, how are you doing today?
0: Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me aboard.
4: Oh, Mike, we're glad you can make it today. So um, you have a show coming up here in Pittsburgh, and that's going to be sometime in April. Yeah. And that's kind of what we want to talk about today, talk about you and the Missing Men. But before we get into that, I was wondering if you could give our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your catalog a little bit of a background
0: okay um the pittsburgh gig what what is that uh hmm. april tenth at the tenth yeah. uh, april at the brillo box okay mike watt he is from a san Pedro band called the Minutemen. uh he uh got on bass because of D. boone's ma <laughs> and uh we started playing music together as boys. And uh graduated san Peter high School in nineteen seventy six right when the punk scene came out and so we were highly highly influenced by that movement and uh, we went out to uh become part of uh s s t uh, and tour with Black Flag and our brothers uh Husker Du and me puppets part of that scene Saccharine trust um See, boom, got killed in a van wreck. And, uh, it, yeah, it destroyed me in a way. But I got playing again with a band called Firehose. A young man named uh, Ed from Ohio came. And I did that for seven and a half years. And then I st- started doing projects on my own. And at the same time, uh, started helping other people. First was Porno for Pyros. Then Jay Mascus in the Fog. And for the last eight years, in April, it'll be eight years, uh, Iggy and the Stooges.
4: Wow, that is a heck of a resume.
0: Thank you, Aaron. But it's I still got, really got a lot really more hard. to learn. I got, I got a lot more to learn. So.
1: so
4: roughly how long have you been playing bass now, Mike?
0: I was 13 when I started, and uh, I'm 53 now. Wow. So a little wow, while. Forty
4: years. Wow. <laughs> Man, and I, I'm a I'm a bass player myself. So you you oh, big, big respect, Darren. Yeah, like I I I I oddly enough I started playing when I was 13 as well.
0: <clears throat> oh and, wow, um,
4: parallel. Yeah, and it's actually um, thanks to the gentleman who actually runs this podcast, John. Um, he he got me kind of started playing guitars for sure to bass, and I tell you, like I I love playing bass, and the way you approach it. Um, just kind of blows my mind, but like I, I've been, you know reading reading some things, getting getting, you know, prepared for this interview, and a lot of things I keep seeing or reading. People keep saying punk jazz, punk jazz, and when I sit down and listen to your latest record, um, the Native Man, I, like I I cannot think of a better way to describe what you guys are doing. It's so freeform and so but so focused at the same time. So can you tell us a little bit about you know that album and how that project came about?
0: Well, it had a big Minutemen influence. Uh, there was this uh, documentary called We Jam Econo. You know about this?
4: It's kind i of heard it. I've never seen it.
0: Okay, it's the story of the Minutemen. So these guys, Keith and Tim, made it, and they asked me to be a part. And I hadn't been listening to Minutemen for a while because it was kind of heavy, you know, after losing D. Boone. But hearing it again, it was like, wow, I like this idea of boiling the songs down to, like, very smallness and no filler. So I want to work with this form again, you know. But I don't want to copy the Man. Too much respect for George E.D. Boone. So I wrote the whole thing on D. Boone's Telecaster. And I ain't much of a guitar player, as you can tell. But uh, Tom Watson followed my direction, and, and then I put the bass lines to it. Uh it seemed like uh, I was inspired, too, by this painter from 500 years ago in, in Holland called Hieronymus Bosch, you know, these little creatures. So I thought yeah. of making, like, a, each part of this opera be one of them creatures and uh, make one big thing out of many small things. It seems that's what the Minutemen were kind of doing. It seems that's what this painter was doing. So that was the parallel there. Uh, as far as jazz goes in punk... You know, I, I grew up in Navy House, and I, did, I never heard of jazz before punk. People like Raymond Pettibone turned me on to John Coltrane, and I actually thought those guys were doing punk, too. I had no idea. I, I thought they were older, but I didn't know John Coltrane was even dead. I didn't know anything about about that. So when we got involved with the punk movement, it was like almost anything goes, any kind of sounds go. Just if it fires you up enough in the spirit... Grab on to it—that we thought was the main rule—and and not be uh, so worried about uh, genre or something. This, this idea of classifying things, let it all just be some kind of music. And the punk part wasn't really a style of music; it was more of a state of the mind, and trying to make your mind open enough to uh, be brave enough to try different things. That's what it was for
4: us. You know, and that really, really comes across in the sound. And, and it's funny until you mentioned the Minuteman, I, I didn't make the parallel because, but I have the um, the album Double Nickels on the Dime. And yeah. I was listening to that, and then now listening fresh to um to the Hyphenated Man, it's just man, like I do hear the parallels, and yeah. I can I can hear the influence. But again, it's just it's so free form. I I wish I could remember what the song was I was listening to today. Some of the guitar riffs and chords that, that you're coming up with and, and executing through there, and the changes are just blowing my mind. <laughs>
0: You're very kind, Aaron.
4: You know, I was. I never had children,
0: you know. The closest thing I got to children is the tunes. So I try to give them little distinct lives, you know. They kind of get lives of their own anyway once you let them out there and start playing them. People get their own ideas. So uh, when I'm gone, these things will be left. So I do try to put as much as I can into them. You know.
4: Oh yeah. At the yeah.
0: same time, uh, uh, I'm I'm still learning. I'm still a student. But not one, one thing about this uh, third opera of mine shows though. I'm always going to be a Minute Man. <laughs> it's it's like my roots, right? Yeah. Where I started, and so that will always be reflected somehow. That's trippy. I never thought about that before. Thank you for asking about that.
4: Sure thing. So let's talk about your creative process a lot because just a few of the things you've said now and things that I've read in previous articles, um, like like there's a Bass Player Magazine article you did a few years back that really, really captivated me. And you you have this ability to draw inspiration from things so far removed from music that I wouldn't even make like make the connection for that. Like, for example, I was reading about you... Um, you know, you you wrote a lot of your songs while just out paddling in your kayak. Can you tell us about your creative process and and where you draw your inspiration, how you kept your mind so open?
0: Yeah. Okay, this is how I usually do it, going back to Minutemen days. I always start with the title. Okay. And then I come up with the music. And then I come up with the spiel, the words. Uh, I need the title first so I have focus. So everything can come around and be tied together. Uh, I started, when I started doing bicycle at 38 years old, and then a few years after that, the kayak, I started writing on those machines because they, they they're still involved with rhythm, but I didn't actually have the bass machine in my hands. And so it could be more, uh, pure music instead of just, uh, exercises with the fingers. It seemed like when you're always got the, the bass machine in your hands, uh, you tend to keep doing the same thing over and over, what your fingers have already learned. So what I wanted to do was, like, get the ideas from your mind and then try to make them happen on the bass. Instead of the other way around, oh, what your fingers can do on the bass turns into the tunes. So I was trying to... And then other things, too, that helped me have inspiration are uh, uh, writers. Uh, Books, for example, you know, uh, Ulysses James Joyce or... uh, Mm -hmm. Sam Pebbles, Richard McKenna, or uh, uh, Divine Comedy by Dante. I, I let, let these things. Well, there's maybe some music in their writing, the way they, the rhythms of their word flow. It's it's detached. It's far away enough that I can uh, kind of reinvent myself. So I'm not. I always got this fear of like ended up just building track housing. You know, put the garage on this side, the porch on this side, yeah, and that stuff. And I want to keep away from that. Music's too special, you know. It's not just Lego blocks, you know. So that's why I use these kind of weird outside of music things to help me inspire do music.
4: I, I tell you, that, that is really a fascinating approach. And I can tell you, this, um, this portion of the interview is going to go in a little folder on my studio desktop so I can listen to it anytime I get stuck in a rut. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is definitely some insight. I, I never thought of approaching it like that.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know, the bass is a trippy, politically, it's a trippy instrument. You know, it's kind of drum, it's kind of guitar, it's kind of, it's kind of glue. You know, it's, yeah. it puts things together. I really like composing on it. You were talking about Bass Player magazine and uh, yeah. They asked me about what they thought the future. What's my opinion of the future of the bass? And I said I think it's going to be more about composition. I know most composition is done on the piano and the guitar. But it seems when you do it on the bass, you leave a lot of room for the people you're playing with. And to me, the whole idea of an ensemble, more than one guy playing, is you're trying to make an interesting conversation between the machines, you know? Exactly. And uh, so the, the, this kind of focus thing, uh, it kind of helps a little bit. Everything is like device to try to help realize those uh, feelings, those the, the, the kind of emotions, whatever you're trying to get through. Uh with your expression and uh that, that this is what what i use to keep the stuff vital because tunes are, are trippy they're like little worlds under themselves they are trippy
4: they really are there's a start there's a finish there's you know yeah everything going around in it
0: even a little one like a minute Man one there's still its own little life in it you know yeah so I find this, this very interesting. It's challenging, of course, but I think the creative thing should always be challenging. It should never be figured out, really. I mean, we have ways of doing things, but a lot of times, wow, stuff will come to you with, when you weren't even ready for it or thinking of it.
4: Now, what do you do to capture those ideas? Do you keep like a handheld recorder with you or anything like that? I, I got a uh,
0: Pro Tool. Nice, nice, okay. So everything, and especially as I get a little less younger, my memory pretty bad. So I have to right away record it, you know?
4: I'm with you. My name
0: has been back for years. So that's how I use uh, Pro Tools, kind of like a recorder, like we would use a 4-track in the old days or something. Yeah. But then on the other hand, I use it also to collaborate with people because the Internet and trading files, this is something I never did in the old days. You always had to be in the studio with the guy.
4: Yeah. So this is very
0: interesting. So the Pro Tools works for me in two ways. It becomes like a scratch pad for the ideas. I guess demos or whatever you want to call it, or just (laughs) capturing your ideas so you can work them into tunes. And then it also allows me to collaborate people, be able to put bass on their uh, music that they flow to me. So those are the two ways I use, uh, I guess, what you would call modern technology. That's, I see, very beneficial. It goes very much with the old ethics.
4: Yeah, it really does. No problem. Yeah, Yeah, no
0: problem. It's not like anything got sold out or compromised.
4: Now, speaking of the old ethics, what can you tell us about the old SST Records days? Because, I mean, for, for me being on the East Coast, SST records you know, was, was, a, was a legend out of the West Coast and really, you know, um, for me, kind of defined the, the DIY ethic, the do-it-yourself, yeah. Like, how did all that come about? I mean, well, it was
0: Greg Ginn. It was Greg okay. Gin and Black Flag. And what I loved about that label was there was no label sound. Every band had their own sound. And Greg Ginn believed in that enough to not ask people to conform to any kind of uh, branding or something. It was all about the bands having their own identities. That's and fantastic. We were, we were very much uh, influenced by each other, with, but you would never copy each other. It was more yeah. like motivated, you know, inspired. Very interesting scene.
4: Yeah, it, it still just blows my mind to this day, because I actually discovered you working backwards. I was a Rollins Band fan, then worked backwards to Black Flag, and then kind oh, of branched yeah. out from there. To, to the Minutemen and, and the other things you did. One of your first solo records I got was the Ball Hog or Tugboat.
0: Oh yeah, in the middle of the nineties. Yeah, yeah, that was a strange record. I had no band, or I had seventeen little bands. That the the the, the idea was there. I thought I, I was we going to make a little test, you know, if the bass player mm-hmm. knew the song, anybody could come and play with him. <laughs> I thought the bass was that critical, that crucial. Yeah. That, yeah, it's like, like I was telling you before. It's kind of like a glue or a grout, you know? Right. That the guys that just come in the studio and play with you, and if you knew the song well enough, you could fit it all together. That, hence the title, Ball Hug or Tugboat, you know? Uh, tugboat helps the boats, right? Ball exactly. hug, you know, never gives up the ball. Well, I see the bass is like a tugboat.
4: Yeah, you know, I agree with that. I really agree with that. The bass really is the foundation for everything to kind of sit upon
0: yeah interesting thing uh, i got I'm, I'm very grateful to D. Boones ma for putting me on the base didn't even know what it was because you know in those days it was arena rock and you were so far away it was hard to see what they were like. They looked like a yeah. guitar with four strings you didn't know kind of mysterious
4: <laughs> so did you guys when you know when, when you guys were out doing the whole SST records in the Minutemen? did you guys realize what an impact? you were having on kind of what was the current rock scene at that point and the mm. shift that you were creating?
0: I tell you, Aaron, the uh, punk scene was kind of small in those days, and a lot of people hated it. Hated it. <laughs> so we did it because we needed to do it. Each of us were doing it. We were very interested in what each other was doing, but we didn't know about the, the outside people so much because there was a, a little bit of hate, especially with the, maybe the other rock and roller people, more than the Square Johns maybe. But there was a lot of negative opinion to it. And so you had to get kind of a, not to hate other people or anything, but you got kind of a thick skin, uh, not, not expecting approval. Yeah. Okay. But not seeing that we were too good for anybody, but there wasn't a lot of nourishing <laughs> support, you know what I mean? But amongst yeah. us there was, you know, the guys in the scene, yeah, that was big-time support. So almost we were like playing for each other. Maybe then more than uh, yeah what you would call uh, whatever, the audience or something. Although in the old days, a lot of people at gigs also had their own bands. There was a lot of that in the old days. Yeah.
4: That's, that's excellent. I mean, and you guys really cultivated a sound. You cultivated a community around what you were doing. You know, it. You don't you don't see as much of that community aspect anymore. I think people are too in competition. No, but you know other. it was
0: very small too, and it was starting yeah. out, and and those kind of things. But I still see some of it, some echoes of it, in little bits. They're are in little pockets. But uh, that was a little pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you get something too big, I think it lose it gets diluted somehow. You know. Yeah. And it, th- that's just a human thing. I think I don't think it's a a fault of any uh if you think about it, you know Pat Boone sold more Tutti fruities than little Richard, so <laughs> the co- opting uh yeah co-opting of things has gone on a long time
4: yeah oh, that's crazy it's let's talk uh let's talk gear a little bit here okay. <laughs> now you you lately have been favoring the short sta- short scale style bases like the um well well gyps- for gigs okay
0: for gigs, I like the little ones Because okay. my hands are less younger and uh, smaller stretches. You know what I'm saying when you got a smaller scale, you don't have to make as big a reaches.
4: Oh, I agree with that. And the
0: hand get, you know, gets a little uh, less young. They they get beat up a little quicker. But mm-hmm. for recording, I always use a big one, a full scale. But then when I record, I'm almost always sitting down. Okay. So it sits there on your leg, and the the the, the reaches ain't that far.
4: So what is your main recording mission?
0: Uh. Well, I got this Moon bass. It's it's sort of like a jazz, a Fender jazz. Okay. But it's made by a Japanese company called Moon. It's a Larry Graham model, in fact. And and I also use a Thunderbird two from 1966. That's why I recorded Contemplate in the engine room with. Uh, Those are my two main uh, uh, recording basses. Also got a 56P bass with Thunderbird pickups. Sometimes I use that.
4: I was gonna ask about that one, because I saw that one on your webpage. I'm a huge fan of Thunder P bases so yeah, I was curious about that.
0: One. Yeah, I got it for a couple hundred dollars. It had a big hole. The guy had cut a big hole where the pickup used to be. So I thought, uh, hey man, this Thunderbird pickup will fit over that.
4: That's excellent.
0: And it's got a V neck, you know, like the V neck Strats because it was '56.
4: Yeah, they got and it's wheels. uh, it's
0: a, that's a really nice bass, man.
4: Uh, yeah, that was a heck of a beautiful thing. It really was. Now, what are, uh, what are your main line bases? Are you still playing with the, the Gibson EBO? Right I got now? a
0: Gibson EBO in 1965. Okay. That's why I'm using right now. A guy named Dan gave it to me about two years ago. That was after a gig in San Diego. Hey, Mike, why could I give you something? Because, you know, the Stooges had all their stuff stolen in the summer of uh-huh. 2007. So uh, he just gave this thing to me. And uh, it doesn't have the original pickup. It's got a real grand pit bull. I like where the pickup is on a P bass in the middle there. Uh, Yeah. So if it's too close to the neck, too close to the bridge, I don't like that sound as much. I like it in the middle, like where James... I like James Jamerson. He was a big influence on me. This guy who played bass on a lot of the Motown songs. He's an incredible bass player. And he, he rocked a P bass. And I kind of like that sound.
4: Yeah, I agree with that. And, yes. and it's funny you bring up James Jamerson, because I was thinking today, um, I was talking to one of my buddies here at work, and he was me I was telling him I was going to be interviewing you, and he was saying, well, who's that? I said, well, i of him it this way, because some of the other questions I have here are going to illustrate this. But um, I, I kind of look at you as like the James Jamerson of punk rock. Like, oh, any, that's very
0: kind of you, Aaron.
4: Anyone who's been anywhere, you've played on the record, whether I know it or not. Like You're everywhere, and you have a very distinctive style. You know? Well, Mr. I think
0: all of us working the bass guitar owe oh, a lot to Mr. Jamerson because he was fucking... Agreed. He was a groundbreaker, man. He was the guy who gave the voice to our instrument and gave us a promise that it can develop. It can, you know, it's got a future.
4: It's taught us how to kind of do a melody with it. Oh, yeah. You it's know? just
0: moving and it's moving. And he, he didn't really have to go to five strings or slapping or stuff nope. like that. Just just plucking it, you know. The guy came from a stand up tradition, and he just reinvented himself to create a whole new way of being part of the rhythm section. I am yeah. eternally grateful to him.
4: I I agree. I can't agree more with that. I um I don't know if you've seen the um, the documentary of him that's standing in the shadows of Motown. Yeah, but it just that blows me away to to like think about what was going on then and what they did. You know, with what, with what they had, it just blows me away.
0: Oh, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Much respect. So yeah. I'm always thinking of him.
4: Yeah, that's excellent.
0: You know how like, people say, what would so-and-so do? When it comes time for bass <laughs> playing, I think, what would Mr. Jamerson do? That's awesome. You, <laughs> you know, know I, because that guy was just an innovator, innovator, and he made the stuff move, man.
4: He did. He really drove the software, really mm. drove it along. Wait, so uh, how did the gig with uh, Kelly Clarkson come about? Because I've, I've seen you play like a kind of a diverse... Um, the producer career.
0: called me up. He was an old friend. He said, hey, you want to come in and, and try, try... They gave me six songs to uh, put bass to. They were all done, you know. I just had to write yeah. some bass parts. It's kind of a scary situation, you know. you got to learn the song and then write a part right, and play it for people right there. Oh, wow. And... Uh, but she's a nice lady. she can really sing. Oh, didn't yeah, n- I n- n- m- know much about her. Her guitar man, Jimmy, wrote the songs and he knew all about my history. He's very cool people from Houston. And so it was an interesting thing.
4: And that's awesome. And then I saw you also play it on the government mule out. Like, was that just a: song Oh yeah, that you uh, there?
0: Warren Haynes and Matt Abs asked me, they lost their bass player. Right? Alan Woody. He had passed away, and so they were, yeah, doing songs with different bass players, and they asked me to come aboard, and they knew uh, they liked the the flannels, so
3: uh,
0: (laughs) yeah, so we did a Credence medley.
4: (laughs) That's awesome.
0: Yeah, very nice cats and great musicians.
4: That's awesome. Now, one of the most high-profile gigs that um, I've seen you do in the last few years has been with Iggy and the Stooges. How how did that come
2: about?
0: Yeah, kind of mysterious, you know. It's just a series of accidents and stuff that just happened. And uh, I've been In April, it will be eight years playing wow. with them. So longer than a fire hose or a minute, man. And very interesting uh, classroom for me to be in. I just love the Stooges. I love the music. Uh, Iggy's really helped me become a better bass player. You know, he doesn't work a machine, so he's kind of like a conductor. He's a big picture yeah. man. So he gives me really good perspective, and he uh, talks to me with a lot of respect, and he's just the greatest. He works a gig like, you know, a bonsai charge.
4: <laughs> you know,
0: he never goes halfway. It's always all the way. It's just beautiful, his work ethic.
4: That man's energy level never ceases to amaze me.
0: Yeah. He works a gig like people deserve the best you can do, and so work hard for them. I love that fucking ethic.
4: I agree with that. Now, i had heard that um, you kind of, kind of spawned the Resurrection of the Stooges, like that you had corresponded with Iggy. Is that true?
0: No, with Ron Ashton. I had actually okay. played with him. And uh, I made a movie soundtrack for Velvet Goldmine with him. And he'd come see me play when I'd come through Detroit. And so I was on tour with my second man. I was in Tallahassee, Florida, and I get a phone call, and it's Iggy. And Nick says, hey, Ronnie says you're the man. And that was the most intense phone call I'd ever gotten in my life. Wow. couldn't believe that. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. uh, I, I when I play with them, I believe I, I owe them my best notes. I try my hardest for them.
2: That's
4: awesome. Now, do you, uh, do you guys have any fusion dates coming up?
0: Yeah. The, after this tour with the missing man, uh, the summer I'll spend with the Stooges. Over, they, they, they do uh, festivals overseas usually in the summertime. And that's why I'll gotcha. be playing with them. Yeah. I just got back from Australia and New Zealand with them. Oh, wow. Yeah.
4: So you've really played with a lot of people over the years, and you seem like you keep yourself very busy. How do you keep up this pace? Like, What do you, what do, you do to keep yourself going and keep yourself all these projects?
0: Well, I really believe everybody's got something to teach me. You know, if I just keep putting the bass in some challenging situations, I'll keep learning. And I think by keep learning, you keep living. It keeps the fire in your belly. And so I'm into the challenges uh, that music can bring to you, to to, to be creative, to uh, uh, be expressive, to try to get that voice from inside out. And that's the way I look at it. It seems like you never can finish. <laughs> One thing leads to another. You can do this. That means it's possible to try this and this and this. So it's like peeling an onion, you know?
4: Yeah. All right, so you've got the Missing Men tour coming up. Um, right. What could we expect from this live show here? What, what can fans expect?
0: Well, I play the whole piece, all 30 parts.
4: Wow, you're going to do the entire album. Yeah. Wow. But it's it's okay. like one
0: song. It's like one song in 30 parts.
4: You know, you know what? I, I noticed that as I was listening to it uh, this morning on my way to work. I, I couldn't believe just how, how well everything flowed, one song to the next. It was just, it, it didn't sound, you know, never wants to sound monotonous, but it all really sounded like one continuous body of work. Like, I haven't heard anything like that since, like, the Mozart days when I was, you know, listening to a lot of classical.
0: <laughs> yeah, I kind of got the idea on the first two albums, there's a song called A Quick One Ways Away.
4: Yeah.
0: And, yeah, this idea where one work could be made of many smaller works.
4: That's, yeah, that's phenomenal. And, and then, like, seen my... what
0: I had to say, I didn't have the skill enough to put it one tune, so I had to use a bunch of little parts. <laughs>
4: I think it worked out well. I'm really, really enjoying listening to this album, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys come through town.
0: Thank you much, Aaron.
4: Well, Mike, uh, I got one last question for you, and then we'll wrap up our interview here. Okay. And my my question is, um, what advice would you give, or could you give to young players who are just starting out today?
0: Hmm, good question. Well, you know, you look at your thumb. You see your thumbprint. You and I both know that's very unique, right? Right. Well, somehow, try to translate that to, remember what I was uh, speaking of before, the inner voice, that everybody, I think, has got their own voice. And somehow you've got to get that out, bring that out through your playing. The thing that makes your thumb different, that should come out in your playing somehow. Now, it doesn't mean always, to, for example, a rider he can use the same words every, every other writer's use, it, but he can still write a very original novel. So that's what I say would be a good uh, strategy. Somehow you've got to find inside of you what makes you you and bring that out through your uh, playing, make it part of your expression.
4: That was a fantastic analogy with a writer. I never thought of it like that.
0: I mean, if you use other words, it's kind of hard to read (laughs) if you make them up. Finnegan's Wake, (laughs) (laughs) you know, for example. (laughs) But so so, so what I'm saying is it's not just trying to make a sound that nobody else has ever made. It's it's the way you uh, evolve your expression, taking what's inside you that makes you you. Because we all come from different experiences, right? We all have different dreams and stuff. And so somehow we get that all woven up as part of our expression and... uh, that's why I would advise to the young person. I'd actually advise it to the older person, too. I think that's a, a, a kind of ethic that can stay with you the whole time you're, you're trying to get uh, in the struggle with expression, or with playing.
4: That is great advice, Mike, great advice. <clears throat> well, Mike, we won't take any more of your time. I want to thank you again for coming on our show today. I'm looking forward to seeing you come through in April with The Messing Men.
0: Okay. Thank you much, Aaron. We're about
2: to enter the Time Machine Tour. Getty Lee, Alex Lifeson, Neil Peart, An Evening with Rush. April 6th, Huntington Center. Performing their classics, A Taste of the Future, and the legendary moving pictures live in its entirety. Reserve seats are on sale now at all Ticketmaster locations. The box office are charged by fraud. I hope you enjoyed our interview with Mike Watt. I know I had a great time talking to him. I found the man to be very, very inspirational. Um, really, really gave me a new approach and a new fire for kind of, you know, my own compositions. I'm really looking forward to putting that into um, in, into practice. I'm going to probably clip out a few of the audio clips from that interview, keep them on my desktop handy where I can always listen to them. Just when I get stuck or I need to pick me up. Because, man, what a great guy and what an open mind he had. So our next Interview up is with Mike Silverman, and Mike Silverman is also known as that one guy, www.that1guy.com If you want to see more about this uh, gentleman, and I really recommend go to his website, watch his YouTube videos, because you're going to hear a track, um, you're going to hear a track by him called Paxel Wallop. That's the track I'm going to play here shortly, and it doesn't do him justice. It doesn't give enough of what is going on visually. Um, And just as well as audibly, he has this instrument he calls the magic pipe. He built it himself, and it's just phenomenal. He is a one-man band, but not a one-man band in the sense that you're probably used to thinking. Um, it, It just blows me away. Like When you see this big magic pipe, he's got a couple of strings on there. He bows it. He jumps around on it. He's doing all these things I'm like, man, how did he ever come up with this? So during the course of our interview, you're gonna find out that he was a jazz bass player, professionally as a jazz bass player, that's what his dad was as well. And, you know, me being a bass player and having played the, the upright bass, as soon as he said that, it just clicked. It completely made sense that okay, well, duh, he of course is a jazz bass player or played the upright bass at some point because when you watch him jump around the neck, there's no frets. It's it's all just one you know one smooth pipe. He jumps around that neck nose where every pitch is, and only somebody who's used to playing a fretless instrument in that fashion is going to have that kind of inf- intonation to pull it off and pull it off live. Um, I had a blast talking with Mike, and I hope you enjoy our interview, which will be up next again following his track packs a wallop. Do, 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 do.
3: do <laughs> parted And went from hot to cold So fresh back when it started And now it's growing bold That's when the trouble started At least that's what we're told They kept it safely guarded From new to two days old Ducks eat the bread And they eat free They tap the head Yelling goose at me And we looked into the void And we walked on through us some and this is what they swore they walked around the group and tapped us on our heads we listened for the goose but that was what they said it backs a wall it packs a wall up 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 Wall <laughs>
4: Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome to our podcast today um, that one guy, um, Mike Silverman. Mike, how are you doing today?
1: I'm very well. How about yourself?
4: Great, great. Um, Mike, you have a very, very unique fellow musical thing. Um, and for those of our audience who are not familiar with your music, could you give us a little bit of a, little bit of a background on what it is that you do?
1: Well, in a nutshell, I am a, I'm sort of a one-man band in, in the traditional sense that it's just me on stage. But uh, what I do differently is my primary instrument of of, um, of use is this instrument that I invented called the Magic Pipe. And uh, it allows me to be sort of more than just a one-man band. It's, it's almost sort of a, a one-man orchestra or an ensemble, punk band, funk band, kind of anything I want. It gives me a bit more of a range, a sonic range and rhythmic range. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real crazy kind of thing.
4: Yeah, now, your music, I've noticed, it seems to be very electronic-based, but it seems like a combination of a little organic, a little electronic. Yes. Can you, can you talk about that sound for us a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the electronic sort of influence is, is almost an accident more than anything. My, my roots are very much in jazz and classical music and in rock and punk, too, but um, I, primarily I was an upright bass player, jazz bass player. And when I started my one man band it was very much a, a totally acoustic um concept <laughs> the very opposite to what it is now but 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 in terms of the technique it was very similar I was banging on the body of the bass like a like a drum like a drum set really the different parts of the body have different tonality to it when you when you play it percussively and then I was playing the strings you know with the bow and but with much much different techniques as well like picking and plucking and slapping and bowing and different 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 ways of approaching that when I started with the magic pipe, it was a way for me to sort of control the sound a bit more, but it was also a way to expand the, um, the sonic possibilities, like I was saying earlier. So so basically, um, the electronic side of it was sort of a byproduct of the way I was uh, uh, setting this thing up with the triggers. And I, I set up this uh, instrument with 13 trigger points to replace the acoustic percussive sounds, and and, and when I first started doing this, I was kind of using just the electronic bass drum sounds and, right. and the sounds that were inside my sampler that I came with before I started making my own samples. So it, it, by default, it started to kind of have an electronic sort of sound. I'm not very influenced by electronic music. I do listen to a bit, but I, it's, it's, that wasn't my primary objective. And it was funny when I first started playing with this stuff a lot, I was getting a lot of comments about, um, you know, rave and and that kind of sound that was happening in the '90s, and, and and that wasn't an influence, though a lot of my stuff has a very four in the floor sort of feel to it, and so by default it ends up sounding like that a little bit.
4: That that's that's amazing. That is that is quite a journey from where you started to where you ended up.
1: So, oh um, yeah, definitely. That's the interesting part is I couldn't have told you I'd be doing this back then. <laughs> I couldn't be. I couldn't told you I'd be sounding like this now. <laughs> that's
4: amazing. So let, let's rewind a little bit then. So. You said you were you were a jazz bass player, like upright player um, t- tell us a little bit more about that like how long have you been playing how long were you playing bass
1: um my whole life I started playing when I was ten years old, and uh, my dad was a professional jazz bass player, um, and so lucky for me, I grew up with the instrument in the house so the upright bass and also lucky for me, we had this incredible jazz band in junior high it was this music program was really amazing and uh Everybody wanted to play, you know, saxophone or drums, um, and there was already a million guitar players in school, but nobody ever thought about bass, and when I told the director we had an upright bass, he just freaked out that you got to play it, we, need, we always need bass players, and if you play it, you'll always work, he says, you know, this. There's, there's always a shortage of upright players, especially upright bass players, and oh, yeah, I kind of jumped, yeah, you know, oh, it really is, I, I sort of jumped right into it, and, uh, started digging into that instrument and, and, you know, kind of never looked back and it was, he was right on the money. I mean, when I started playing, we got an electric bass too, by the way. And, uh, even before I really knew, or, knew where half the notes were, I was already in like four bands in junior high, just because everybody needed a bass player. And so the, the, a great situation to be in, in life in general, is to always be challenged and be playing, you know, be working with people that are better than you, be playing playing music with people that are better than you, and uh, I was always getting in that situation. I was always playing in bands with drummers that were, you know, way farther along than I was guitar players, so I I was always getting pushed and challenged, and, um, you know, that's I, I accelerated a lot quicker that way, which is just a great place to be in. Wow. I'm a
4: bass player myself, and it's funny, I had a very similar experience in my high school. Once once I found out I was a bass player, I played bass in our high school jazz band from eighth grade on up.
1: Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yep.
4: And I really like what you said about um, always try to play with musicians better than you. That's how you grow.
1: Um,
4: yeah. That, that is so true. I mean, like, like, the better musicians you work with, it really pushes you in different directions. And I think especially what you've done here with the Magic Pipe, that's, you know, obviously evident in the fact that you've pushed yourself now, not just, you know, from your ability, but from, from a sound perspective as well.
1: Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting one. i got to say, like when I started playing alone, it, that was one of the biggest challenges, and it still continues to be the biggest challenge, is how to motivate yourself to, to push yourself. And I, and I found a, a bunch of ways to, to try to do that, but it's, it very much takes a lot of effort on your part to do it. And uh, uh, it's much easier when you're playing with other musicians that inspire you. I mean, it's, you sort of can't help but be... Pushed and sort of, uh, you you're you evolve a lot a lot quicker for sure, and uh, it's it's really an interesting idea to to sort of push yourself. But uh, there's also these places you can go on your own that you can't go with other musicians, and, and it's and it's also, you know, in relation to to your your advancement, and, and and you can kind of get into detail and things and really think about things on a different sort of level and there's a different kind of patience you can even have with your own music that i don't think you can have with other musicians i know with with my own band we were always like looking at each other going oh man we're i'm tired of these songs we need to be playing we need to write new stuff you know we're always kind of like pushing each other that way with 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 the solo thing you can sort of you can look at an older song and, and sort of think about ways to get inside it and change it and and, and think about detail, and and it's really an interesting, it's, it's really an interesting thing. Almost more like an old vaudeville performer does, where they work on the same act their whole life, and they and they're always kind of looking to just fine tune it and, and and distill it down to its most powerful uh, version, basically. Huh. Yeah,
4: that's, that's a very interesting perspective
1: of that. Yeah, well, that's stuff I've been checking out a lot. I've been I, I've been studying magic for the last three years, and. I've been reading up a lot on vaudeville and, and stuff, and that's a big part of it. It was this I mean, it was, it's very different than music, but uh, but a big part of it, it was these guys, you know, in the vaudeville theater, everybody had about eight minutes, and most of these people just did that eight-minute act. That's all they did, you know, their, for their whole lives. They would just do this eight-minute thing, but it would be amazing. It would be just incredibly strong and and really well thought out and, and well, you know, not to mention they'd, they'd do it 10 times a day, so it would just be very, very solidly, um, consistent, and, you know, the art, the level of it, the timing, everything was just at, at its highest point, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to think about that stuff, um, you know, of course I want to have more than eight minutes, but I, I just like the idea of focusing on something like that, and, and as, as little pieces, and, you know, a lot of my music is turning into that, like, each each song, I'm trying to make it like its own, its own little vaudeville one-act play, you know, so it has its own prop, or its own illusion, or trick with it, and, or its own sound, you know, or hopefully all those things. You know.
4: Wow. Now, do you play any other musical
1: instruments? Um, primarily double bass. Um, with with the with this um, with with my one man band that I do, I I do play the saw. I, I bow the the uh, the, the cross cut saw, and that's actually not something that I invented. That's something that's been around for a while. But I do plug it in. I have a my own means to amplify it. I'm running it through my whole rig. Makes it okay. real psychedelic sounding. So. That's very much my own kind of contribution to that to the tradition of that instrument. But then I also yeah. play an electric uh, electric cowboy boot, which is something I did invent. That's called the magic boot, and that's very much sort of like um like an electric an electric hand drum. That's, that's sort of what I was going for when I built it. I wanted to build almost like an electric talking drum or, or tabla that that I could play rhythms with my fingers, real delicate kind of rhythms that I can't do on the magic pipe because that's much more of a brute force type of approach. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it really came out good. I really enjoyed playing that instrument. I only do one or two songs with it, but um, it's, it's a really nice little transitional um, instrument for the set.
4: That's cool. Man, is that cool. Now, so who were some of your biggest musical influences? Like, what, what what maybe led to push you down this route?
1: Okay, let me think about that. There's so many. I mean, as a jazz bass player, you know, the stuff I grew up listening to and still listen to quite a bit, like, like I'm a big Miles Davis freak, especially, mm-hmm. like, i am been getting really, I, I love the early, early stuff, but I've been getting way more into, like, the later, even early 80s, late 70s stuff, and the, where he almost started doing hip-hop, but it was still sort of psychedelic, freak-out yeah. 70s, you know, experimental stuff, and the late John Coltrane stuff, I like the early John Coltrane stuff, but the later stuff, I really like the real experimental, weird stuff where he was really inventing his own vocabulary, you know, that's the stuff that's really grabbing my ear. I keep going back to that. But then the Captain Beefheart is a huge one for me, especially lyrically. I just yeah. love like the abstract and yet sensible way <laughs> the lyrics kind of fall into play and um, let me think, you know, Zappa's always there, you know, more, more, more about just like creativity and work ethic than anything, even more mu- than, 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 musically. I just always loved that he was, just had such a big body of work that he put out,
2: He's um, an you
1: know, oh yeah, just, you know, you can't, it, it's undeniable. And in the same way that the Beatles, what they did is undeniable, even if it's not your cup of tea, it's like, you can't deny the creative sort of power of what they did, you know? Um, and then, and then uh god some oh, other lately oh you know even my contemporaries you know like i i've gotten to do a lot of work with buckethead and i'm just his his output has been really knocking me out lately like his his his, his the albums he's been making you know he's putting putting them out like 12 at a time and yeah. they're all they're all super quality like really high high end work you know it's just really really good stuff so um you know and and uh, what else is, you know what else, what else have I been listening to lately I'm, a, I'm still continue to be a huge Rush fan I've, since I was a kid, and the documentary just came out on them, and it just sort of kind of re inspired me to just dig in deeper to them again, and yeah, it's just it's sort of endless, you know.
4: Oh, that's excellent. Now, have you guys done like any work with Mark and Ed? Have you guys done any recordings together?
1: Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we have a two man band called the Frankenstein Brothers.
4: Oh goodness, I need to hear that
1: yeah oh it's great yeah i gotta maybe I can get you an album or a copy of that. it's it's, it's uh, we did an album about a year and a half ago. we did a big tour together and and um and we put out that record for that tour and uh hopefully get to do some more he he's, he's just really inspiring i just i just really dig making music with him
4: yeah he he's an out there guy who' just has technique like like out of the wazoo you know and, and it's funny like I remember i was watching your videos um watching watching your videos kind of getting ready for this the other night and I'm watching you play this pipe. I'm like, man, how is he doing all that? And I'm watching you bow it, I'm watching you do all this sort of stuff, and then as soon as you said jazz bass player, I'm like, oh, explained everything for me. Right. You know, because that you know, really shows where you're coming from with this creativity. Now, so, like, how did you really come up with the concept of this giant pipe?
1: Um, I mean, really, uh, it, it's very much a, a reaction to the way I was playing the double bass. Not, not even a reaction, but a, it was inspired by, you know, because I was I was playing with this technique, which I still play the magic pipe with. Okay. Basically, it's 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 it was it was a way for me to take this instrument and just further the uh, the sonic possibilities. And so, in terms of design and everything, that was something that just happened when I was building it. And okay. um, you know, really, it was the function dictating the form. You know, like I I went to the hardware store, I picked out all these pipes and all these parts, and I just started decent them all together. And um, and I, even the shape of it really was very much a reaction to the way I was going to be able to access the strings and access the access the, the triggers and such. And it's very much a very utilitarian the way it's put together. You know, as, I wasn't thinking of it as sort of an art sculpture or high art or anything, but I was yeah. really m- very much thinking of it as, as what's the easiest way for me to play. it. But then it ends up kind of coming out looking like a real sculpture and stuff, which is really fun. You know. Yeah,
4: it's pretty cool looking. I gotta say. Thanks. Now, do you have to, do you, like, completely assemble and disassemble that for every show, like, to, to, to travel with it, or can you leave it partially assembled?
1: Um, it's, it comes apart and goes into a case, yeah. Yeah, it's a way I can travel with it for sure. It's about, it comes into about, it splits into half, basically.
4: Okay. Well, what's your setup time
1: like on that? Um, it's pretty easy, you time-wise or just the, the technique.
4: But just in, in general, because I was watching the video with you assembling it, and I'm sitting here thinking, like, Man, I struggle with getting my electric basin in my amp Some days I couldn't picture how to put all those parts together.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a bit of work. It's it's um, I end up uh, it, it, you know I can do it really fast. I, I I know where every wire goes like it's like it's the back of my hand, you know. Okay. And then basically I, I you know I, I the pipe the whole thing kind of screws together. It, it's been machine this new version of it's all machined, so it's made to go together really quick. And then. Um, um, one of the older versions of it. It was the same exact shape and design, but it all came apart with uh, the string, so it actually poked down even smaller. But I would have to string it every time. This version, all the strings stayed together because I just I didn't like how the old one was hard to stay in tune. This one really holds its pitch real well. So, excellent. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it 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 works out real well this way.
4: Now, so I, I'm a, I'm going to assume that it is a fretless instrument, correct? Yes. Yes. Now, so. Do you have markings for yourself as far as for where uh, where the different pitches are going to be, or did you, when you designed it, did you try to set it up like the scale length of your upright bass neck, so you had that frame of reference?
1: No, it's totally way off the um, the scale length. That's that's the crazy part. Um, okay. I, I have I have my own markings, and actually they're they're my they're, my, they're, my, they're my own system of notation that I mark on the pipe itself. And the crazy thing is the. The big pipe, it's a low C, it's lower than a bass, and the scale length is is, is just way, way bigger. So the half steps <laughs> up, by the, up by the headstock are like, you know, some of them are a good like two inches for each half step, you know. It's just wow. like, it's insanely big. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But the way I'm playing these bass lines and things, uh, and just sort of my approach to this instrument, it, 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 it's so percussive that it, it, it seems to be okay. And the way I'm moving around, the instrument seems to be okay for the big string. For the small string, it's actually way shorter than than an upright scale length so it's almost more like a cello maybe i'm not sure but i just i sort of found a scale length that was comfortable for me and and it's it's actually much easier to play especially in the in the higher register i can i can do these these giant stretches and and get these big intervals which you know you really have to do when you're playing a one string instrument it's got to be you got to think you know in terms of intervals and that's the way my brain's always thought about music theory anyways is very based on like the, the way intervals sound and and melody and stuff. So it's it's. I really love thinking that way. And this, the way it's set up is perfect. I can I can do like entire octave stretches and things. So I can really get in there and and, and play some real real fun melodies and intervals and sort of the way I pro- even when I'm bowing I, I approach it very percussively. So it's 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 a great setup for the way I play music.
4: Now, how many strings do you have on there? Cause I thought I only saw one. So do you have more than one string?
1: Well, it's one string on each pipe. So and there's two oh, main okay. pipes. So. Yeah, one's like my melody pipe, and one's my bass pipe. So it's almost like it's two one-string instruments is sort of the way the instrument's set up. Okay. Yeah.
4: I, and i got to say, like, watching the videos I was watching, I've watched you live videos, your intonation blows me away.
0: Oh, like, thanks. I'm,
4: like, the way that you're you're singing these pitches, you know exactly where to go. Like, like I, I couldn't believe, because, I mean... Like I like I do play a little bit upright bass. Never was never that great at it, but I still enjoy it. But my intonation was always a struggle for me because I, I started as a fretted player. And right. um, to to watch you up there on this giant vertical pipe, your pitch is right on with your vocals. I'm like, yeah, you blew me away. I was very very impressed.
1: Oh, thanks, man. That's always been something that's been real important to me is pitch. You know, I mean when I studied when I was studying double bass, I had this really amazing teacher when I first started, and he really stretched. He really stressed. You know how important it was to play in tune, and you know w- when you're learning classical technique you really you really focus on that stuff, especially if you're going to be playing with an orchestra you have to be able to blend and, and, and match pitches and really use your ear and and you know pretty much every instrument in that orchestra is it's not a fretless instrument, but it's pretty much you have to you, you have to think intonation all wind players and brass players mm-hmm. all have to do they all have to use their ear and play and, and it's amazing how an old, whole orchestra has going to have perfect intonation you know more than even a rock band with fretted instruments can you know and so i think in some ways as much as it's a ch- it's more of a challenge than a fretted instrument it's also there's also more potential to um you know to to kind of sound even closer to the to the pitches that you should be playing you know
4: yeah no i i can agree more yeah that's it it I, again i just can't, i can't believe like how well you've really developed your ear and, you know around that um that instrument. So let's talk effects. Like, what kind of what kind of effects? What kind of, I guess, outboard electronic gear do you have that thing running through?
1: Well, that's that's the, one of the parts of my instrument that's constantly shifting and changing. Um, I had for the longest time. It's all hard. It was all hardware based. You know, I, my um, you know, my triggers were going into a sampler, an old SP808 sampler, through a trigger input module, and then. Um, my strings were just going through just tons of multi-effects. You know, I had I had all these DOD envelope filters. I had like three of those and all these Love different this. distortion pedals, these Sans Amp distortions in this metal zone and all these different filters and things. And then I had this really incredible box called a switchblade that would route everything in parallel and you could, you could drop anything in at any given time, like anything could be routed to anything. But I've actually since changed a lot of that. I started using this, um, there's a program called MainStage comes the logic that actually simulates all those things because all of those pedals were, they kept breaking and i kept buying them on ebay and um i found this thing it took me a year to figure out how to use it but um I, I finally got it going and uh and it's got all those pedals and more and the reverbs and the delays are really clean and sound really good and so i just i've been plugging into an interface and Running, running my strings into that, and then I've also been using my SP808 kept breaking too, and I was using zip disks and stuff to save my sounds, and so I found the sampler that, within that program called um, it's ESX24 sampler. Oh
4: yeah, I love that.
1: It, it's it's a pretty primitive sampler; It doesn't really do anything, but my my uses of it are very primitive. I'm basically just triggering one shot sounds with my triggers. So, yep. um, you know, which is you know that's the, it's a, it's it's really the fact that I'm really playing everything live is 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 Kind of the reason I don't need a whole lot of technology for this stuff, in a sense, and it's really more about effects and triggers. I mean, that's that's the essence of what I do. And uh, so between these two things, I can I can cover a lot of ground with the machine, and um, and I still have I have to use the interface and the trigger input module. And there's a couple effects I still use too. You know, uh, there's this yeah. even tied box called an Eclipse. It's got some really beautiful filters and reverbs and stuff. But I, I might even be phasing that out too, because um, this thing kind of does all that and even more. I I haven't even really dug into it as deep as I should be I'm I got a real short attention span and I always once I get things up and running I just want to play you know I just want to play the music so so it's uh, getting in there and messing with sound is really like doing homework for me but I you know it's something I really when I get when I go to do a new record I really like I go into my backyard with a microphone and I start banging all kinds of little objects and trash cans and windows and that's why I get all my sounds they're all collected sounds that I make myself uh, with found objects so
4: yeah, I I, like I use Logic for editing the show.
1: Um,
4: I I love it, but you're right. There are so many layers. You, you're never gonna find, figure it all out.
1: Uh it's so deep, man. I mean, my my um, my friend Billy, who did my last record, he's a Pro Tools guy, and he's a, he's a real master with it. And he was thinking of switching to Logic, and he he thought it would take him a whole year just to get to the level that he was at with uh, his Pro Tools. Like it's that complicated. But you know. Yeah. It's, you know, I'm sure some people find it very simple. It's just, it's just small what you're used to.
4: Now, do you travel with, a um, with like, a Mac laptop are you using a Mac Mini? How are you running this?
1: Yeah, no, I use a little Mac laptop. Yeah, a little, a little PowerBook. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah, no, they're great. They're super great. I love them.
4: All right, well, Mike, um, you're going to be in town here at Club Cafe on March 18th. Yes. And I'm looking forward to that show. I am going to try and make it out. I played, um, played your stuff with my wife the other night. Um, <laughs> I, I took her to a misfit show and she hasn't forgiven me yet. So I, I have uh, to kind of kind of ease her into things, and sh- she really enjoyed the stuff. So hopefully we're going to make it out to the show on the 18th.
1: Um, oh, bring her out. Love it, yeah, I love a ball.
4: Yeah, so you're going to be here on the 18th in Pittsburgh, and um, yep. we're really looking forward to having you in town. It's going to be great.
1: Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to playing. It's going to be fun. I always love playing there.
4: All right. Well, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming on the show today, Mike.
2: And um, we'll see you soon.
1: Looking forward to it. Take care.
2: This concludes our show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to both these uh, gentlemen that we talked to, Mike Silverman and Mike Watt, and I hope you get a chance to go check them both out. Uh, Remember, Mike Watt will be here on April 10th at the Brillo Box. Mike Silverman is going to be here just around the corner, March 18th at Club Cafe. Uh, Both of them are both excellent. If you want more information on either artist, Mike Watt's website is www.hoot, page.com. and Mike's website, Mike Silverman's website, is that, the number one, and the word guy.com. Uh, both are amazing, very unique instruments, or instrumentalists rather, and very, very interesting approach to their instrument. One of the things that came up in the interview that I'm sure you heard with me and uh, Mike Watt was. He was saying that the future of bass is going to be composition. And I think that's really well illustrated by what we learned in the interview with Mike Silverman. Um, Because, you know, as a bass player, he took it so far as to say, okay, here's what I like about my instrument. Here's what I wish it could do. And reconstructed the instrument and really thought about it from a compositional standpoint. How can he create the sounds and the rhythms and the things that he wants and do it by himself and keep it an interesting show? So, again, I really hope you enjoy those because I know I had a fun time doing them. Um, As always, we really appreciate you guys, uh, your support out there. This is episode 97. I can't believe this is episode 97 already. Um, My first episode was Rich Williams of Kansas back in June 24th. I can't believe we're, you know, almost going to get to 100 episodes here. John's been doing this for a couple years. We're very excited to be doing this now. Um, so again, if you like the show, please visit our website, www.ironcityrocks.com. For more news and information about what's going on in Pittsburgh, we've got a video podcast going on there. Uh, we'll have different little promos, different little shows, sometimes contests. And um, always please visit our links page and um, help support the show. And as always, thank you so much for listening.